In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajah. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in this series called Life, the Islamic Answer in which we are trying to appreciate and understand how we are supposed to extract some principles to live Islamically in a complex world, in a world where answers are not always simple. We began the series with the first theme, an exploration, an in-depth exploration of the first theme in the series, which is the theme of knowledge and reason. Uh, and giving priority to uh, knowledge and building our entire Islamic foundation on the basis of knowledge. And we began with it for a number of reasons. Some of them are Islamic and other reasons are also because it is the reality of today's world in which a world that considers knowledge to be the new capital knowledge is considered to be the source of power in the world. And so we began the series with an exploration of this theme of knowledge, trying to understand the spirit of our religion, trying to understand how we need to adapt to the principles of Islamic living in this world where there are constantly new needs and new challenges to which we have to adapt both as individuals and as communities. And we said that the part that is not always easy to do is that we want to do this and we want to be able to live Islamically in today's world while remaining true to our identity, while not compromising on our beliefs, on our values, on our principles and what we stand for. So without spending too much time on the recap itself, where we landed and where we are right now is that we are exploring the theme of or the topic of sincerity and intention in Islam. We said that when we look at knowledge in Islam, knowledge has two main conditions for it to be truly knowledge or truly Islamic, knowledge in the Islamic sense. The first one has to do with the intention and the sincerity with which we acquire that knowledge. The second one is that the knowledge needs to be transformational knowledge, which can only happen through action. It needs to transform us. It needs to lead to action. And when we began with this discussion, we thought that it would also be appropriate to spend a little bit of time once we were done with the link between sincerity and knowledge so that we acquire knowledge with the right intentions. We also said that it might make sense to spend a bit of time understanding what Islam says in general about what Islam says in general about intention and sincerity. And so now we've been trying to uh, spend a bit of time really to understand these notions of sincerity and intention, niya and ikhlas and Islam. And we said that some of the conclusions that we have reached already is that 
there are a number of narrations and in the verses of the Quran from which we can conclude that the sincerity of our intention is actually this ikhlas, is actually the ultimate purpose behind our religion, behind our worship, behind our faith. That's first. And we said that if we compare the narrations and if we look at the different teachings in Islam, we see that there is also a mention that this is actually what the elites amongst the believers compete in. It's not a superficial level of belief that will get someone to reach purity of intention, sincerity of intention. This is usually reserved to the people who really care about achieving the highest levels of faith, the highest levels of belief, proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we saw a number of narrations that really talk about this being the area, being the, 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 the place where the best of the best are constantly competing to distinguish themselves. And once we understood uh, in general what our religion says about sincerity and intentions, we also started to look at some of the narrations that really show us the full meaning, the full spectrum, that to allow us to understand or appreciate that this is not a uh, one rank uh, level, this is not a one rank state, that the states of sincerity or the, the, the scale uh, or the continuum uh, of intention uh, is a very broad one. And it can be, you know, at a very superficial level, simply making sure that when we're doing something, we're doing it with the right intentions. But this can go very high in, in terms of really purifying those intentions and making them exclusive to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this ultimately leads to this notion that we talked about, which is to foster and create a, an intimate relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a relationship that is personal, which is not something that comes intuitively to most of us. We think that our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply means that I perform the tasks as though I have a to-do list and I go through it and that's it. But I don't really think about the ultimate purpose behind all of this, which is to really feel that I'm in a personal or intimate relationship with my Creator, with my Lord, with my God. Okay, so inshallah, uh, those points have been clear. And we said that what, when we truly appreciate what we're talking about, we can see, and this has actually even come up in some of our discussions and, and questions, that this is not necessarily something that is very easy to do. It takes practice, it takes uh, discipline, uh, and it's not something that uh, we can just jump into from day one, the moment I become a believer, that it goes without saying that I also have very pure intentions and that I'm doing it for all the right reasons. This takes time and it, it, this discipline uh, uh, is required over a length of time and practice uh, and a proper and close examination of ourselves constantly to bring us to those types of states where we're constantly aware of why we're doing something, what are the real intentions, what are the real motives, drives, that are making us do an action or speak a word or perform whatever we're doing. And we said hand in hand with the effort and recognition that this is difficult, it also goes without saying that there is also a reward that goes with it. And so this is an area in which if you go back in the narrations and we saw that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises to reward very handsomely and in very special ways those who achieve 
ranks or levels of sincerity and exclusivity of intention to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is at the level, let's call it the more spiritual or religious dimension of the discussion. And in parallel to that, and we said let's always try to do this no matter what we're looking at, even though we're not spending all the time to do this, always remember that we're also trying to see how can this be beneficial to us on a day-to-day living in the non Uh, religious or the non-spiritual dimension. So all of this may seem like it's entirely uh, beneficial to the spiritual dimension. The truth is that, and we saw narrations that talk about this, the idea that if you're actually able to live your life in that type of exclusive relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it gives you an incredible mental fortitude and and strength and uh, it puts you at ease. You're not constantly worried about what other people are thinking or thinking of you and how they're assessing you and waiting for their praise and waiting for their compliment and waiting for their attention. You're, you're ridding yourself of all of that, which also comes with, it does come with a, a certain desire on our part, generally speaking. The majority of human beings, that's what they want. They're motivated by this, of course. But if you're able to actually rid yourself of that, or if you actually reflect on it deeply, you see that this, all of this also comes with a heavy price. It comes with a stress and anxiety and constant worry that you're cleansing yourself from and you don't need to worry about because now you're in a completely different type of relationship, right? And so we saw that that's why the, the narrations, they talk about this idea that there are people who are able to achieve sincerity in the sense of only worrying about what God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, wants from them and only fearing their sin, only fearing that those things that may impact harmfully the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so we talked about all of that and the conclusion from all of this was that there's a psychological dimension to this, which is that it allows us to truly reach an inner peace. It truly gives us a mental strength and fortitude that is that would not be easy to achieve in any other way. We also talked about the idea that, uh, and we kind of finished on this theme, and so inshallah today, this is where we, what we use to transition to uh, the next hadith we want to look at. The idea that there is a way already logically from everything we were looking at, there is a way to think that we need to have an intention behind everything that we do that this intention and that sincerity in everything we do is not limited to the everything in the religious sense. It's not only limited to when I perform my prayer, my fast, my pilgrimage, when I give zakat, for instance, and so on and so forth, which are the rituals of our religion. For those, for sure, the intention needs to be that it is exclusively for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm expecting a divine reward for these efforts and for these uh, rituals and actions, especially those that are obligatory, okay? But beyond that, what about the rest of my life? What about the normal way in which I live? And we already started to see that at the rational level, there's actually perhaps a way for us to make all of this into something Islamic, something devotional, something spiritual, at least to have a spiritual dimension, even though it may not entirely be spiritual, especially when it comes to knowledge, because this has been our topic from the beginning, but this can apply to everything. But applied to knowledge, the knowledge that may not look at the surface, at first it may not look like it is Islamic knowledge, 
It looks like I'm learning to become an engineer. I'm learning to become, you know, um, to acquire a certain craft or a certain skill or a certain discipline. I'm learning sociology. I'm learning history. I'm learning computers. Depending on the intention behind it, what do I try to achieve with this? Why am I gaining this knowledge? Maybe I'm gaining this knowledge simply to make more money, to become in a more respectable profession. Fine. And there's nothing, no wrong with that in itself. But what if I thought to myself that, in fact, by being in this discipline, I can help myself and I can help my community, I can help my family. I feel that there's a need here. There are not enough of us who are lawyers and we feel like we really have a, a huge need in this department. And so simply going in that direction with that intention is already adding another dimension to what I'm doing. I'm doing it with intention. What if I tell myself that I'm doing this because I want to do the most good I can and I feel that this is a field given my background, given how I think, given my talents, this is probably the area where I have to focus my energy because this is where I can do the most good in the world. This is where I can reflect who I am, my identity, my values the most to myself, to my community and to the rest of the world. What does my religion stand for? I can do it more and perhaps better in this field than perhaps another field. The moment we can go in that direction, you've added an intention behind the knowledge. That, but this applies also, as we saw, this also applies to everything else in life. Right? So I can add this intention behind or to any act that I perform. Anything that I say or don't say. Anything that I take or leave. Anything that I feel. If I can think about the idea that I'm actually doing this with intention, and the intention is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No matter what it is. And if you remember, there we finished, we ended with this narration. Where the Holy Prophet is telling Abu Dhar, you must have an intention for everything that you do, including when you eat and when you sleep. That was the last hadith that we looked at. So at one level, we can say for sure, this means, as we've been talking, this means that there are two people who are performing the same act. Perhaps they're eating, perhaps they're sleeping. Two, per two people performing the same act, but because this person, person A, is adding the intention that they are doing this for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to become a better servant to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this person is getting a reward for this act that has now been transformed into an act of worship. Whereas the other person, because of the intention, nothing else, just because of the intention. Whereas the other person is simply, you know, uh, uh, fulfilling a biological duty to sleep or to eat, for instance. Nothing more. The only thing that has changed here is at the level of the intention. So one dimension of this is that now I'm getting a reward from it. In the afterlife, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to consider this an act of devotion to him and will reward me for this. Fine, that part is clear. But I think there is more. And we touched on it last time and I come back to it because this is one of the main, inshallah, one of the main points that we're trying to emphasize, especially in this theme in this series, the theme of knowledge. Why are we spending so much time on knowledge and reflection and intelligence, aql and ilm? Why? Imagine someone who is actually trying to, and they achieve these levels, where every time I'm about to do something, I examine my intention, and I ensure that my intention is for these reasons that we've been talking about. 
so that I'm a better person, so that I'm better serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so that I do good for myself and my family and my community and the world. Someone who is constantly in this state of examining their motives and examining their intentions also means that this is not someone who just follows blindly. You cannot be, pardon the expression, the sheep following the herd in this way. The sheep have no intention. They don't think about their own motivations behind because you're part of the herd. And if the herd is going left, you go left because you're part of the herd. And if they're going right, you go right because you're part of the herd. You follow. And we have already seen in so many narrations, in so many verses that we've looked at, this importance of having a critical outlook that if you are a true believer and you understand the spirit of our religion, then you also understand the importance that it gives to thinking for yourself, knowing where you stand, knowing what your principles are, knowing what your values are. When something comes your way, you constantly compare it to, you, 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 you explore it, you assess it, you evaluate it based on the spirit of Islam that we're studying, right? Once you've done that, then you know where you stand. And if you follow the herd, if you happen to be following the herd, it's not because you're just another sheep in the herd. It's because you know that's the right direction and they happen to be going in the same direction as you are. And there will be cases where you say, no, no, the, the direction is on the opposite side and you see no one else is coming. They're all going in the other direction. That's fine too. And we saw hadith, remember from Imam Ali salam and other ones where we looked at that the Imam was telling us, once you have the knowledge and once you've applied this ability to reason and use your critical thinking, it does not matter whether the people come or not the same direction that you're going. It does not, should not matter to you because you know where you stand. You're doing it based on values and principles and you know your worth, you understand why you're doing something. And this, imagine, so we're linking all of this back to this hadith where the Holy Prophet, and there is a number of a hadith that we looked at that talk about this, in which he says, Make sure that you have an intention behind every action. Every deed that you perform, as neutral and simple and trivial as it may be, it needs to have an intention. The moment you start thinking that way, it means that you know why you're doing this. When I'm about to eat, it's not just simply you know, eating to eat and you have no clue what you're doing, you just go with the flow. No, you eat with intent, you sleep with intent, you work with intent, you study with intent, you play with intent. All of it has a reason. And this means that your entire life is constantly under, under the microscope, under your own magnifying glass. You're constantly re-examining yourself. Should I be doing this? Is, the right, is this the right thing to do? Does this actually bring me closer to God? Does this make me a better person? Do I need this right now? Do I need to chill another three hours? Maybe 30 minutes was enough. Maybe 45 minutes was enough. Maybe two hours was enough. Maybe three hours ago was enough. And I'm still here doing nothing. At some point, if you are actually constantly reviewing your life and examining yourself from in this light, that when I'm doing it, I'm doing it with intent. And the intent ultimately is, I'm doing this because this is what God wants me to do. And we've said again and again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want you to stand in a corner in the mosque all alone your whole life and just worship. He wants you to have a full life with all of the dimensions of your life completely fulfilled. But it needs to be in balance. 
And it needs to be with the right priorities. You put the right amount of energy in the right places. And with time, and as you learn, and as you grow, of course this is constantly going to be changing. Which is fine. That's also a part of life too. But you do need to examine yourself. You do need to examine your intentions, your motives today and in the future too. Okay, so inshallah, this was one of the main conclusions that we were trying to extract from the ruwayat that we were looking at. So yes, there is a spiritual dimension. There is a religious dimension behind all of this. But there's also a part of it that we can apply to our day-to-day -day life. Okay, something very practical that inshallah we can keep in our mind. And of course, when, when we looked, as we said, we want to look at the higher levels of this. So imagine this person who is actually able to achieve this state, to reach this state where every single act is actually performed with not only with the intent, but it's actually truly performed for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sometimes I intend to, but I may fall, fall short and that's fine. Okay. And in other cases, there are people who are actually going to achieve this. So every time I do perform something, it is performed only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this applies to every aspect of my life. That's why we said we want to look at the, the higher echelons, right? Where can it potentially lead us? And we didn't kind of close the loop on that. Because the hadith or the hadith that we looked at, they started talking about things like someone who is in perfect control of even their feelings, of their emotions. Right? You only get happy for Allah and you only get angry for Allah and you only get sad for Allah. You do not take anything except that it's for Allah and you don't give anything except that it's for Allah. Those were the hadith that we we're looking at. So of course these are very high levels of sincerity in living and in action and in intent. So who matches this? Where does this go? Well, this is what you find and this is why we know that this is possible. This is what we find in someone who is basically infallible. And this is exactly what you find in the Holy Quran and in the Hadith. Some of the description of those people is that this is the level that they have achieved. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He talks about the Holy Prophet in the Quran for instance, as one example there are many. In one example Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those who hurt Allah and His Messenger. How do you hurt God? How is it possible to hurt God? That in itself would not make any sense except to understand one intent and we're going to touch on that today. If they could hurt Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they would. Okay? That's the type of intention that they have, the vicious, wicked intention. But you can't hurt Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is a logical impossibility. Okay? But they hurt therefore Allah in another way. And we talked about this last time. They hurt the Holy Prophet. They try to hurt the Messenger of God. If the Holy Prophet is getting hurt like you and I get hurt, I get hurt because my ego has been harmed, right? For selfish reasons. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not come to my rescue. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not bring down, you know, reveal verses of the Quran to say you can't hurt this person, his, his little feelings, right? Of course there is something sacred to the believer and to the human being in general. That's not an issue. But there's a difference between the person who does it with intent. These are two things. On the side of the person who is hurting the other, they have performed something that is undesirable, a sin for instance, and so on and so forth. But on the side of the person receiving, they may be right and they may be wrong. 
Okay? I may be getting hurt, but it's not something that should hurt me. So we don't know about that part. That, that, when it's in that type of situation, we're really focused on what was the intent and the end result of the person who harmed the other. In the verses of the Holy Quran where he talks about those who hurt the Holy Prophet, in those cases we know that there's something definitely wrong. The Holy Prophet, and this is the, the point of all of this, if everything else that we've been saying is true, then the Holy Prophet is not going to feel hurt for himself. If it's about himself, he won't care. Right? This is the inner peace that we talked about. This is, it's not going to matter. It's not going to really affect me. What is it going to affect the Holy Prophet? It's going to affect him if it affects the mission, this prophetic mission as a messenger. It affects someone's relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala steps in. And so the verses say, those who hurt the messenger of God, Allah's curse is upon them. Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's curse is upon them in this life and the next. Fid dunya wal akhirah. There's a curse upon them in this life and there's a curse upon them in the afterlife. And that's not all. And they have a hum humiliating punishment awaiting them in the afterlife. Right? There's a humiliating punishment for them for this. Why? Because what you're trying to do is not actually hurting the Prophet in his person at a selfish egotistical level you are hurting what he stands for the values that he represents and because he has become this entirely in every part of his being no matter how you deal with him you are dealing with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so you hurt him you are hurting Allah we talked about this when we talked to the opposite we said what does it mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gets angry or happy we, we talked about this the last time well this is another example of it and we see this in Imam Ali السلام, we see this, there are very clear, I think all of you know the hadith, Fatima al-Zahra, when the Holy Prophet talks about her, what does he say? Bid'atun minni, she is a piece of me. And then he adds, whatever makes her happy, makes me happy. Whatever makes her sad or angry, makes me sad or angry. Or in another hadith, he says, Yardallah liridah. What does that mean? How can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala get happy or angry, pleased or unpleased, displeased when someone is feeling displeased or someone's feeling angry or someone's feeling happy? It's because that person in their entirety, in everything that they stand for, they've aligned exactly and entirely and absolutely with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. So this becomes a further proof of infallibility. When you have this, you have a, a guarantee that whatever this person is feeling, that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stands for. Are they pleased right now? Is this person pleased? Well, who, who can you say this about unless it's someone that is entirely infallible? This is what when we say we want to follow someone religiously, when we want to give ourselves up, surrender our will to someone and become their follower, this is what we're looking for. We want this type of guarantee so that if this person tomorrow they feel angry or sad or I know that whatever they're doing and however they're feeling, it actually stands for what God wants. And this is equal to one way to understand asma. When we say someone is infallible, this is one way to understand it. That their entire being, their entire will is now perfectly aligned with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. Is this achievable? Yes. 
And that's why we read in the hadith that this is what we should try to achieve. This is not something out of reach for a normal human being. It's difficult, it's a lot of work, an incredible, incredibly high level of discipline, but it's within reach. A human being can apply this to every aspect of their life. You at least intend to. You at least have the motive to. Every time you eat, every time you sleep, every time you do something, that it is done with that right intention. Okay? So let us now continue. Inshallah, this is just kind of to close the loop on things that we were talking about. The next hadith we wanted to look at um, is actually from a very interesting du'a in Sahifa Sajjadiyya. And inshallah, one day we can go through it. It's an amazing, amazing du'a that deserves its own series, uh, truly. It's du'a number 21 in Sahifa Sajjadiyya, du'a Makarim al-Akhlaq. Okay, so Imam uh, Sajjad alayhi salam, Ali ibn al-Hussein, Zayn al-Abideen, he has this du'a, usually it's number 21, sometimes it's number 20, uh, or depending on other versions of the Sahifa. But the, the, the classic version of Sahifa Sajjadiyya, it's usually number 21, du'a makarim al-akhlaq, the noble traits, makarim al-akhlaq wa mardi al-af'al. That's the, the title of that du'a. And so there is this, these, this is how it begins. Okay, and inshallah, as we said one day, it, it's really, truly a compilation of all of the virtues, the uh, uh, character traits that a human being should aspire to. They're all in there. And they include social dimensions, individual dimensions, and spiritual dimensions. So it's, it's really a beautiful du'a to look at, inshallah, one day we can. The Imam begins the du'a by saying, Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa alih. وَبَلِّغْ بِإِيمَانِ أَكْمَلَ الْأَكْمَلَ الْإِيمَانِ So bring my faith to reach the most perfect faith. وَجْعَلْ يَقِينِ أَفْضَلَ الْيَقِينِ And make my certainty, my certitude or my certainty, the most excellent certainty. Okay, the next. وَانْتَهِ بِنِيَّتِي إِلَىٰ أَحْسَنِ الْنِيَّاتِ this is the punchline for us here. And make my intention the best of intentions. بنيتي, bring, bring my intention to being the best of intentions. And my deeds to the best of works or the best of deeds. And then this is the first paragraph. And then the second paragraph starts with this line. Allahumma wafir bilutfika niyati. Wafir basically means to complete or to perfect something that still has deficiencies and you want it to be perfect. So the Imam says, Oh God, complete my intention through your grace or perfect my intention through your grace. And rectify my certainty. Again, he talks about certainty. And rectify my certainty through what is with you. And set aright what is corrupt in me through your power. So there's a few things here that we can highlight. The first one is that in already the first two parts, the two sentences or the two paragraphs of, the, of this dua, you see twice the imam has come back to the notion of niyyah. Right? And the first one was and the second one Allahumma wafir bilutfika niyyati. Okay? So the first one is 
for its importance, the Imam is beginning Dua Makaram Al-Akhlaq with two mentions of the intention, the sincerity of intention. A second point here I think is that when the Imam in both of them, to the best of intentions. The second one, perfect it, complete it. Both are in the same vein or in the same line of thinking that we've tried to present this, this part of the topic, which is a recognition that intention has many, many levels. The Imam wants the highest level. Or he's teaching us to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the highest level in this hadith. But this is a confirmation of what we've been talking about, that this is a very large spectrum. And that we need to aspire to the higher levels. Don't be content with you know, the superficial or the, the entry level in this. The last point, very quickly, is that all of this is only possible with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again. We talked about this as a recurrent theme that don't think that, especially for things of the heart, things that are spiritual, never think that you can achieve those on your own. In fact, that that thought would go against sincerity and having the right intentions. It goes against Tawheed and what it stands for. Okay, But especially in matters of the heart, in matters that are spiritual, make sure that whatever you're doing, you're doing it through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By asking Allah's help, or here as the Imam says, Allahumma wafir, he doesn't say just complete it, no, by your grace, bilutfika. Okay, I'm, I'm beseeching you, I'm imploring you, I'm asking you to do it by your grace. Or in the first one, wantahi biniyati, and make my, I can't do it on my own. I need you to make my intention the best of intentions. Okay, so this is another theme, inshallah, that is clear from these types of uh, sayings and adriya. A second hadith is also another dua in Sahifa Sajjadiyya. Um, and of course, we try to do this because, you know, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into all sorts of discussions about these works. So we try to shove what we can where we can, right? Nahj al Balagha, Sahifa Sajjadiyya, and other works. So another uh, dua in Sahifa Sajjadiyya, this one is number uh, 9 or 10. The, again, depending on the, uh, the classic version that you're looking at. And it's called, مِن دُعَائِهِ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ فِي الْإِشْتِيَاقِ إِلَى طَلَبِ الْمَغْفِرَةِ So when the Imam is, is this, has this yearning, this desire for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness, this is the dua that he would recite. So the dua reads, Allahumma fasalli ala Muhammad wa alih, O God bless Muhammad and his household. Waj'al hamasata qulubina. Let me read the Arabic and then I'll read the English in one shot. Waj'al hamasata qulubina. Wa harakata a'dha'ina. Wa lamahata a'yunina. Wa lahajata al-sinatina. Fi mujibati thawabik. Hatta la tafutana hasanatun nastahakku biha. Make the whispers or the murmurs of our hearts, the movements of our limbs, the glances of our eyes, and the utterings of our tongues. So what's left? Nothing is left, right? Make everything. 
every dimension of my existence, make it in that which makes your reward incumbent, makes your reward necessary. So no matter what's happening with any of these parts, if there's a whisper in my heart, there's a thought, right? If there's anything that's happening at, at the level of, of my psychological level, okay? At the level of my mind, of my heart. If any part of my body moves, if my eyes glance at something, right? That's what the Imam is saying. If my tongue utters something, then make all of that something which makes your reward necessary. Makes your, calls your reward. Makes your reward incumbent, obligatory. It will happen. All of these. Okay, how can this happen? The only way this could happen is that you are doing it with intent. All of these things, if they are happening, they are happening with an intention behind them that this is for God, and so God rewards them. That's only fair. So this is what the Imam is talking about. So at one level we say, how? How is intention? On the one side, this is the result of your devotion. You are truly devoted to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the more devoted you are, the more of you falls into this. That's on one side. And the other side is what we talked about a little bit earlier, which is that you achieve a level of awareness, constant awareness. We, we saw this even in, the, in, in last, uh, uh, last week's lecture, where every part of you is constantly aware, including Imam Ali السلام, was saying that no matter what you see with your eyes and what you hear with your ears and what is presented to you and whatever crosses your mind, it does not distract them. He was talking about those who are reaching the levels of sincerity. It does not distract them from the remembrance of God. Being in a state of remembrance, no distraction. Coming back to the theme that, or the idea that we introduced today's lecture with. You do not get distracted. Because you are so firm in your intention, you know where you stand. No matter what's happening around you, there are no distractions. Okay, so again, is this simple and easy and given to everyone? Of course not. But again, this is where, what we can aspire to. This is a higher level of intentions that we can aim for. The next hadith, this one is from Nahj al-Balagha. This one, inshallah, also, one day we can spend a little bit of time on it, or a lot of time on it if we can. And it is part of the, the longer series, the life series, although not in this theme, not in the theme of knowledge. Inshallah, towards the end of the series, we will dedicate a theme, a series of lectures on the political vision of Islam. And when we reach there, inshallah, we will spend a lot of time on this because there's a lot in this specific piece of writing or report from which we can extract what is the Islamic vision of politics. How does the political ruler rule? How does the political governor govern in Islam? Okay, and this is the letter of Imam Ali alayhi salam to Malik al-Ashtar. This is letter number 53 in Nahj al-Balagha. So after the long sermons, the second part is the letters that Imam Ali السلام, wrote and that were compiled by Sharif al-Radi in the second part of Nahj al-Balagha, the letters. 
So number 53, it's a quite a longer letter from Imam Ali salam when he sent Malik al-Ashtar to Egypt as his governor over Egypt. Okay, there were issues and uh, Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was uh, not going to remain in power there. The, the, there was all sorts of revolt against him because of Muawiyah and what he was doing behind the scenes. So he basically sent his right man, right arm man, right, right hand, Malik al-Ashtar, the commander of his armies, the one who was considered the main one, you know, leading the forces of Muawiyah salam in his government and so on and so forth, Malik al-Ashtar. If you want to, you go back and read it. I think it does deserve a very thorough examination. Entire constitution politically can be extracted from this. So, and we don't have time to, it's quite lengthy. Uh, but I thought I would just read this tiny part of it. We are talking about niya. We're talking about intention, sincerity of intention, and there's a mention of it. But I thought I'd give you the full paragraph before it so that, you know, we extract what other lessons we can, you know, Secondarily, uh, by, by, uh, as derivatives, since we're talking about the topic, I thought I would mention those. And I, I'd have just too much to say, you know, if it, the day, inshallah, when we come to this. A few years ago here, a few years ago in 2014, 2015, a new government here came into power. One of the genius ideas that they introduced at the political level is that the Prime Minister now gave a public mandate letter to the ministers. So what does that mean? Before, when a minister becomes, when someone becomes a minister, they receive, in one form or another, their mandate from the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister says, this is what I expect of you. This is what you're going to be working against. You're going to be in this position for a year, for three years, for four years. These are your priorities. This is what you need to achieve in this time. This is what we promise the people in our campaign. Okay, so this is called a mandate letter. That's your mandate. That's what you're working against. The genius of this government, the idea that the whole world considered amazing and elsewhere in the world they started to implement the same idea is that they made them public. So now when the prime minister appoints someone as minister, you can go on the, on the website of the Prime Minister, Canada.ca, and you will see all of the mandate letters. And in fact, as soon as someone is appointed minister, you can bet that it's going to be in the news what was in that mandate letter. So that everyone now knows, it's transparent and open. Everyone knows and holds accountable what this person is working against, what they need to achieve in the next two, three, four years that they're in that position. It's not something, you know, behind closed doors, we're not sure what their priorities are. No, we're going to make it all official and out in the open. Okay, so this is just happening now. And as I said, elsewhere in the world, they are now starting to do the same thing because they saw huge benefits to hold accountable a minister in their position as a journalist, as a political commentator. This is huge. It helps you a lot to know what the prime minister was expecting from the minister. I would say that in, in, to a large extent, what Imam Ali السلام, was sending to Malik al-Ashtar was his mandate letter. Only it was 14 centuries ago. Okay, but everything's out in the open. Everyone knows the mandate against which he's working. Everyone knows what's the criteria against which you can assess him. 
This is his boss, and this is what his boss is expecting of him to do it, and this is how he's expecting him to do it, by those criteria. And so you can come back and say, well, to what extent did he achieve that? And you can easily assess. But if you don't know, then you know everything remains hidden. You have no clue. Maybe, maybe he was completely incompetent, and maybe he did exactly as he was told to do. You don't know. You don't know what he's been asked to do. In this case, we have it all. Imam Ali put it in writing. He could have just told him. No, no, he put it in writing for the generations and the centuries to come. This is what I'm expecting Malik al-Ashtar to, to do. Of course, Malik al-Ashtar was not able to do any of it because he was killed as soon as he reached uh, Egypt. Muawiyah killed him. But at least this remains to us today. Okay? So inshallah, one day we go into all of this. And, you know, there's a part of this that's Political. There's a part of this that we can learn from that is leadership in general in Islam. What does leadership look like, regardless of political? Just leadership in general. Small community, big country, doesn't matter. It talks a lot about the character traits in Islam. What does it take to have that full personality that now today is called all sorts of different things Islamically? What does it take? What does it look like? So what does the Imam tell someone like Malik al-Ashtar? What does he expect of him? How does he handle himself? How does he deal with difficulties? And so on and so forth. Okay, and then it talks about social life and you can get an idea of in Imam Ali's vision, what does a society look like? Because he's telling his leader to move it in that direction. So you can get a, a full vision from that too. And inshallah, as we said, we'll come back to it uh, later. So the Imam says uh, in this part, So the context here is that the Imam has just told Malik in the letter, he's explaining to him how he uh, prioritizes the work. As a governor, you're extremely busy. It was a, an incredibly complicated time, an complicated environment that he's taking over. So the Imam gives him a series of uh, you know, priorities, let's call them. He basically tells them, don't get distracted by those things, don't get distracted by those people, focus on those people, focus on those types of needs, those are more urgent, and so on and so forth. Okay? And then he reaches this part, which as we said, the point of all of this is really just to get to the sincerity part, but we're taking that uh, excuse to talk about all of this too. Okay? And so he then he tells them, ثُمَّ أُمُورٌ مِنْ أُمُورِكَ لَا بُدَّ لَكَ مِنْ مُبَاشَرَتِهَا there are certain matters of yours which you cannot avoid to perform yourself. As a governor, you can only govern if you have uh, associates and secretaries and people who represent you. They're all over the land, they're delegated, they're representatives, and so on and so forth. The Imam is saying, while you have that entire system, there are things that you need to do yourself. Don't leave that to anyone else. You need to step in and do them, perform them directly yourself. Don't rely on the delegates. Don't rely on the representatives, the secretaries for this type of thing. Okay? Then he says, Minha ijabatu ummalika bima ya'ya anka kuttabuk. So one of them is to draft or write the responses to respond to your officers when your secretaries are any unable to do so, incapable to do so. So your secretaries are the ones who, you know, you may have 10, 15, 20, 30 people 
whose job it is to answer all these letters that come in. Today they would be emails and letters and correspondence. And, but at that time, there are all these you know, written things that come. There are things that... So those people, they know where you stand on everything. You've given them clear instru instructions. Some of them are asking for more money. Some of them are trying to deal with some issues. There's an uprising here. What do we do with it? So on and so forth. He tells him, so yes, you do have those secretaries and they need to be performing their job. But those things that they are incapable of performing themselves, answering themselves, you need to do that yourself. Don't rely on them. You need to step in and do it yourself. Okay? He says, وَمِنْهَا إِصْدَارُ حَاجَاتِ النَّاسِ عِنْدَ وُرُودِهَا So one of those things, he's telling him those things that you need to do yourself. وَمِنْهَا إِصْدَارُ حَاجَاتِ النَّاسِ عِنْدَ وُرُودِهَا عَلَيْكِ مِمَّا تَحْرَجُ بِهِ صُدُورُ أَعْوَانِكِ So one of those things that you need to do yourself is that you dispose of the needs, of the requests of the people when they are presented to you in the wurudiha alayk don't procrastinate don't push it to another time for those of you who are interested in business this is business coaching okay this is not just political this is all leadership as things come up deal with them don't wait don't take too long to get back to them so make decisions and deal with the affairs and the needs and the requests of the people when they are presented to you and which cause a burden or a heaviness or, or a hesitation in the hearts of your assistants. In what way? There's a psychological component to this. There's a, there's a lot here. The Imam is saying that you have all these assistants, you have these people working for you, and there are things that are going to make it to you, to your ears. Somehow they're going to reach you, those things. And you're going to know, you should guess, or you can see, that they cause some sort of narrowness in the chest, in the heart of your associates. What does that mean? That there's a burden or a narrowness or a heaviness. They don't want to do it. They hesitate. They procrastinate. And this is very normal. Anyone who knows management and leadership, you will know this. And there could be all sorts of reasons. I may do it to get more power. I may do it so that I can uh, twist things and make them work to my favor, not to the favor of the person asking. I may get something out of it instead of actually dealing with the request coming in. I may take my time. By taking my time, you know, I'm lazy. Uh, I, I want to have other priorities. Uh, I don't want to spend so much time. This one is difficult. I'll just push it back to next day or next week or next month. So the Imam here says, no, no, you step in. You don't let this happen. If they're not going to do it for whatever reason, for any of these psychological reasons, or they can't and they're burdened by it, you step in and deal with the affairs of the people as they come up. Okay? Don't procrastinate. And then he adds, And finish every day the work of that day. Because every day has its own work. Tomorrow you'll have its own work. It will come with its own work. Don't procrastinate, don't push things back, and so on and so forth. And then he says, another, I think, a gem of a piece of advice that the Imam adds. He says, So, keeping in mind that this is someone the Imam is sending to govern 
over a huge patch of land and a very complicated one, Egypt at that time, with everything going on. And this is the advice that the Imam gives him. This is the expectation of Imam Ali السلام, of Malik al-Ashtar. He tells him, you must keep for yourself, because he's been talking about all sorts of priorities. We just touched on a couple. Okay, the rest we didn't talk about, it's quite long. He's talking about basically how you manage your time, how you separate the portions of your time. Here he tells him, so keep for yourself for that which is between yourself and God Almighty, the best of the times and the greater of those portions. Regardless of all of that, as complicated as things are, as difficult as things are, as much of a job as you have to do, as many responsibilities as you have, Imam Ali السلام, tells Malik al-Ishtar, and make sure that you look at all of your time and you see what's the best time for you to be in communication and in worship and in contact with your God. You keep that for yourself. That time remains sacred. This is between you and your God. No one can come and interfere with this. Not me, Imam Ali السلام, says, and not any one of the people that you're supposed to be governing. This remains sacred between you and your God. Okay, so he says, you keep the best of times and the greater portion, Imam Ali السلام, says, inshallah one day we'll talk about that. How the Imams tell us to manage our times. Well, we will talk about that. It will, it will be part of the series. Inshallah we'll come to it. We'll see the, the criteria of Imam Ali السلام, is, is difficult and quite high. And so we'll see that other Imams will be a little bit easier on us. Imam Ali السلام, has very high criteria for everything. So he tells him, you keep the best of times and the greater of the portions for your relationship between yourself and your God. Nothing comes between you and your God and you have to keep a time dedicated for that, but truly dedicated. It's not that you're running away from your responsibility by going to worship. And No, no. And we're going to have an answer here. And this is what I wanted to get at at the end. He adds from this, because someone might think, okay, but this person is sent with a mission. I mean, he's not sent to worship in a mosque. He's sent to govern. He's sent there as a ruler. So how does that work? The Imam السلام, he adds here, after he said this, and he says, وَإِن كَانَتْ كُلَّهَا لِلَّهِ إِذَا صَلُحَتْ وَسَلِمَتْ مِنْهَا Even though, he tells him, so he told him right now, and make sure that you look at all of your time, and you find the best of those times for you to worship God, and you make sure you worship God in that time. And the portion of your worship to God has to be the greatest of those portions. Your relationship with God is more important than other relationships. Even though, the Imam says after this, even though all of your times, everything that you're doing, all of your activities, وَإِن كَانَتْ كُلَّهَا All of your times, كَانَتْ كُلَّهَا لِلَّهِ The truth is, everything you're doing, and every portion of your time that we've been talking about, in truth, it's all for God. With the condition, So long as your intention was good, you had the right intention when doing all of those things, then all of those things were already for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what we've been talking about, right? That you have the right intention behind the act, 
And then the act is for God. So here the Imam is very explicit. This is the conclusion of all of this. Even though all of it is already for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so long as your intention is good, then what about our objection? Is he's not sent there to worship God. So the Imam adds, وَسَلِمَتْ مِنْهَا الرَّعِيَةِ And here we can explain it in two ways. I think one of them is a lot clearer and stronger than the other. So long as your intention is good, one, and two, and this is where we recognize the importance of duty in Islam. We talked about it the last time we met. He says, so long as the intention remains righteous and the subjects prosperous by it. Which subjects? Your subjects, the people you're governing. So long as whatever you're doing leads to the prosperity of those people, then it is all for Allah. And so long as your intention is righteous, then it is already all for Allah. So while he talked about the sincerity of intention, he added another criteria here, the Imam. That the people remain in a state of prosperity. The society over which you rule, because you are the ruler, the government that you have must lead to the prosperity of. So we have here a condition of what an Islamic society looks like. That people feel like they are living a prosperous life, a life of prosperity. Everybody is happy. Everybody is part of it, participant actively of social life. Every, everybody feels dignified and respected and they have their place in that. Otherwise, you don't have a society in which the Imam would say, وَسَلِمَتْ مِنْهَا الرَّعِيَّةِ Ra'iyah are the people that are under your rulership, under your government, your governance. Okay? So, inshallah, all of this is clear and we can come back to it at another time. Um, I don't know when we started, so I'm not really following track of the time. I apologize. Uh, how long? 58. Okay, so let me finish with this one last hadith. Okay? We have a hadith that talks about Prophet Musa alayhi salam. I'm given the time, I won't spend too much time on it. I think the majority of you know, generally speaking, the story of Prophet Musa alayhi salam. So, after some events in Egypt, he ran away from Egypt. Okay, there are people who got into a fight. He tried to deal with it by helping one of them against the other. The other person ended up dying. And then this was going to be used to deal with Prophet Musa salam and kill him. So he ran away. And he ran away in the Quran. The story is, is uh, presented but not in full detail. So you'd have to go back to the reports. But clearly the Quran says he left Egypt. خَائِفًا يَتَرَقَّبْ in the state of fear, watchful, because he thinks that they're going to find him and do something to him. And then the Qur'an skips to, فَلَمَّا When he reaches the water of Madian, مَاءَ Madian, He found those two women who needed help, and they were standing on the side, they needed help getting water, and no one was really helping them, people were preoccupied with their own caravans, and those women were there, they need water. So he went to them and he asked them, what do you need? Do you need any help? They told them, yeah, we need water. And it's not customary for a woman to go and get water. So they added, they said, وَأَبُوْنَا شَيْخٌ كَبِيرٌ And our, our father is an old man. That's why he's not here. We are here, we need water, but 
you know, were kind of they're waiting on their side. They're not doing it themselves. Fasaqalahuma. Quran says so he took care of providing the water for them. He went and and that was already a very impressive feat. And inshallah we'll come back to that in the future. That Prophet Musa salam, was able alone to provide all that water for them. Because that was you needed a lot of people to do that, and Prophet Musa salam, did it by himself. So this became one of the reasons why one of them wanted to marry him, right? When she, they went back and she spoke to her father. So we're skipping all of that. So Prophet Musa salam, gave them water, and when they were good, they left. And he stood aside. Because we don't really know that he's a stranger, what just has happened, what he's running away from. He's, he's a very wanted man. And so they leave and then they come back. Because they spoke to their father and they told him what happened. And their father invited Prophet Musa So this is a hadith that talks about now Prophet Musa going with them to their father. Okay, so he has reached there. And the, there's a reason why I'm mentioning this. If you go back in the narrations, they say that Prophet Musa salam ran non-stop for seven days. From, and it makes sense because, and today I repeated the calculation, I've done it in the past, but I wanted to make sure that I have the right numbers. Okay, so I used Google Earth and I did some quick calculations just to look at, it's very approximate, I don't have any scientific way of doing this. But very approximately, Prophet Musa salam, ran away from Egypt and he ended up in Median about one week later. That's 500 kilometers. So he's basically running the equivalent of the two full marathons, right? A marathon is 26 miles, 40 kilometers. So he's running about twice that in a day. Is it doable? Is it feasible? Yes, but you have to be incredibly, incredibly athletic. Okay, so let's put that aside. That's part of something I want to talk about later. Insha'Allah as part of the series. Okay, so Prophet Musa salam reaches, but in that state, he's not doing this as, you know, a marathon runner with a whole team providing you water and supplements and food throughout. He's doing this in a state of fear. He is going to be killed at any time. And there's a reason why he goes that far, because he knows that the agents of Fir'aun are going to go to the ends of the earth to reach him. Right, so he can't stop. This is really about his life. There's no way, there's no alternative. Either you do that or you die. So Prophet Musa salam, so you must imagine his state, what state he's in when he reaches that. When he reaches Ma'amadian, and the first thing he does is he helps those two women. And then on the side, it says on the side, he was able to get a date. So he ate a date and he prayed to Allah. Right? You, uh, no matter how much you, good that you have sent me, I remain uh, in, in, in a state of dependence towards you, in a state of fuqr, of utter dependence upon you. I'm not strong, I'm not, you know, uh, arrogant, and I, uh, it doesn't get to my head that, you know, I have all this strength, and so on and so forth. And so, you have, but you have to keep that in mind. The state, how tired he is, how exhausted he must be, that his state that someone is now taking him in, sheltering him, Right? I think any of us would jump at the opportunity. <laughs> you finally feel that you can breathe a little bit. Right? So now, with that context, we can look at the hadith quickly. The hadith is really not that long. Okay? But I think with the context, you fully appreciate the hadith. And you appreciate the personality of someone like Prophet Musa. How does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose his prophets? 
the part, and I'll explain it as we go, because it begins with Musa wa Shu'ayb, فَلَمَّا دَخَلَ عَلَى Shu'ayb. Okay, so Prophet Musa السلام, does not know that Shu'ayb, the father of the two women, he's actually a prophet. And Musa السلام, is not a, has not been spoken to by God yet here. This happens much later when he marries this woman after he works uh, the seven to ten years for her father and then he goes out in the desert with her and she is pregnant. That's when he sees the fire and then he goes to it and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks to him. All of this has not happened yet. Okay, so Prophet Musa السلام, now enters. This man says, فَلَمَّا دَخَلَ عَلَى شُعَيْبٍ إِذَا هُوَ بِالْعَشَاءِ When Prophet Musa السلام, enters to where Shu'aib was, he sees that supper has already been prepared for him. Okay, it's been set up and prepared for him. فَقَالَ لَهُ شعيب. So Prophet Shu'aib told him, اجلس يا شعب Young man, sit down and have supper. So Prophet Shu'aib can imagine what's going on. فَقَالَ لَهُ مُوسَى فَقَالَ لَهُ مُوسَى أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ I seek refuge from God of sitting down and eating the supper. Why? Prophet uh, Shaib said, Qala Shaib, walimadak? What have I done that you seek refuge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Alasta Are you not hungry? So he says, Qala Bala, yes, I am hungry. Walakin, akhafu an yakuna hadha iwavan lima saqaytu lahuma. I'm afraid that this is an exchange for the watering that I did for the two women. Well, what's, what's the issue with that? The issue with that, he's going to explain it. وَأَنَا مِنْ أَهْلِ بَيْتٍ And I am from a household of people. لَا نَبِيعُ شَيْئًا مِنْ عَمَلِ الْآخِرَةِ بِمِلْءِ الْأَرْضِ ذَهَبًا And I am from a household of people that will not sell, that will not exchange an act that we do for the afterlife for this entire earth if it were filled with gold. Okay? وَأَنَا مِنْ أَهْلِ بَيْتٍ لَا نَبِيعُ شَيْئًا مِنْ عَمَلِ الْآخِرَةِ بِمِلْءِ الْأَرْضِ ذَهَبًا فَقَالَ لَهُ شعيب, شعيب عليه السلام said to him لا والله I swear that is not the case I'm not trying to this is not an exchange of you know like you, your reward with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is preserved this is not why I'm feeding you and providing supper right لا والله يا شعب young man I swear that that is not the case this is my custom and the custom of my forefathers. We shelter the guests and we feed food to people. We give them food. So Musa accepted this and then he sat down and he ate. So if you keep in mind the state of Prophet Musa how hungry and how tired and how exhausted and how fearful he was in that state. But still, he's not willing to compromise. And I'm going to argue something here that's not in the hadith. But I would say that there's two dimensions to it. One part of it is he's talking to this man that he does not know is Prophet Shu'ayb He's telling him we don't do that. There's another part of it that I would argue he's also telling himself. He's examining his own intention. Did I do this so that this person rewards me? Or was this truly only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? I did it with an intent 
that this was an action that I want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward me from in the afterlife. You remember the hadith that we looked at in the beginning last time? Not only are you not interested in what's in the hands of the people, you dislike getting praised. You dislike getting anything from the people in exchange for something you've done for God. So now he's, he's really afraid. He feels like he did something that is much more valuable than what anything that this man can give him. So he's not willing to compromise. He's not willing to sell it so cheaply. I did this for God. You want to pay me back with a supper? No. Not if this entire planet was gold and you gave it to me in exchange for Because he knows the worth of what he did and what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give him. And there's nothing here that can replace that. Nothing in this world can match that. So there's no compromise. Right? He does it. He does it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's absolutely no compromise. And the last point here, very quickly, I'm, I'm looking at the hadith. Maybe one last point and then we stop. Prophet Musa السلام, he did not attribute it to himself, this trait that he talked about. And that has more than one reason. One of them is, it's not, it's not a false modesty. This is a true modesty. That he does not attribute the good that he just described about himself. He didn't, he didn't assign it or ascribe it to himself. He didn't say, I'm this good. He said, I come from a household of people who do not sell. So what is he crediting? He's crediting his upbringing. He's crediting the values that were instilled in him by his family, by what they stand for, how they raised him. It's not about me, because then that would be a praise. And that would go against the whole point of the intention and the sincerity of the intention. He credits the family and he credits the upbringing. He says, I come from a household. So on one side, this way, he avoids praising himself, saying, look at how good I am. That the, this is how lofty my intentions are. And on the other side, there is a recognition of the importance of this household and these uh, values and teachings that they instill in us, right? And inshallah, all of you guys are at that age, in it or close to it. I know the majority of the people who follow this are. You're constantly thinking about spouse selection and creating your own family. And inshallah, all of you are on that path. This is your criteria. You see the kind of human being that you can create with that upbringing. And you have now someone like Prophet Musa. Imagine, I always imagine the, the forefathers of Prophet Musa, the household. One, two, three, four, ten generations before. The decisions that they made, the sacrifices that they made, the efforts that they made. Imagine if they could now watch Prophet Musa السلام, as a young man standing there saying that. I come from that household. They raised me better than to exchange anything of the afterlife for anything in this world. This is the importance of the household, the importance of the decisions that we make. We have to think long term. How is this going to be? How is this going to be unfolding? How is this going to become the reality of not only my life, the, rea the reality of the life of my children, 
and their children and five generations down the road? What decisions am I making that these types of values and teachings can actually stay alive? That we hold them sacred and that there is no compromise in that identity, even if we're looking one, two, three, four generations down the road. Okay, so inshallah, let's stop here and we continue with the next part of the discussion around sincerity the next time we meet.